We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Away we go, episode 64 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 17th, 2021, as we are in the midst of a battle with Boston. It is DC versus Boston for the Capitals and the Wizards in each team's league's postseason. Can't say playoffs, don't say playoffs. The Wizards technically are not in the NBA playoffs. Uh, playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? Yes, playoffs. I said playoffs. Uh, the Wizards are in the playing tournament for the playoffs. So the postseason, but not the playoffs. Confused? Don't worry. But as the country continues to open up and the weather has warmed up and things are feeling at least a little closer to normal, we have the Capitals holding a 1-0 lead on the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And the Wizards set to play in the 7-8 game at the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference's play-in tournament 
on Tuesday night. We have much to discuss on this Monday as we are in the midst of postseason fever. We have in the nation's capital the cicadas and postseason fever. We actually walked by a bunch of cicadas on the ground in our nice Galdi family walk on Saturday afternoon. A walk that included my three-year-old son telling me that he didn't want me pushing the stroller, and I ended up being benched and replaced as the stroller pusher. I was the Dwayne Haskins when it came to stroller pushing on Saturday. That was my weekend. How was yours? Anyway, good to be with you. Lots on the Capitals on the show. Lots on the Wizards on the show. Lots on the Washington football team on the show. Is the WFT is signing Bobby McCain and had its rookie minicamp. Ron Rivera speaking after each practice. There's a lot to sort through. Sort through it all, we shall. Also, I'll talk Nationals off a weekend series win at the Arizona Diamondbacks, including an offensive eruption on Friday night, and Eric Fetty pitching out of his mind on Sunday. And I'll talk some Orioles as they avoided a three-game sweep to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards with a win on Sunday afternoon. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Did you see, by the way, the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame's class of 2021 was announced on Sunday. And among the electees, four former Wizards slash Bullets, Paul Pierce, Chris Weber, Ben Wallace, and Bobby Dandridge. And I know, I know, all four of those guys played a bunch for other teams, although Dandridge was a big part of the 1977-78 Bullets team that won the NBA title, but he played a bunch for the Milwaukee Bucks over the years. But I know for me as a lifelong Wizards slash Bullets fan, seeing those names, I mean, obviously you remember Paul Pierce for the famous shot in the postseason, right? I called game. That's that's an epic line. But Weber and Wallace are the ones that really stood out to me the most. Andrews was before my time. But Weber and Wallace were on that 1996-97 Bullets team. And if you're like me and a child of the 80s and 90s, like that team is a very special team because the Bullets in the 90s were really bad, okay? The Bullets in the 90s didn't make the postseason anywhere near the frequency that the Bullets of the 80s did. The Bullets of the 90s looked lost, looked directionless for so much of that decade. And in 1996-97, it felt like things were starting to come together. So much so that while, yes, the Bullets that season did get swept by Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in three games in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Michael Jordan, at the end of that series, very famously said, essentially, the Bullets are a team of the future. The Bullets are a team to be reckoned with. And I remember when he said that, and the reaction from all of us was like, wow, MJ gave us his blessing. Like, golly gee, we really are on the rise. And my goodness, this Bullets team is going to be here to stay, and it's going to be heard from for years to come. And didn't quite work out that way. That season ended up being the one time in a 16-season stretch that the Bullets slash Wizards made the playoffs. Yes, the Bullets slash Wizards missed the playoffs in all but one season, beginning with the 1988-89 season through the 2003-2004 season. The next time the Bullets slash Wizards made the postseason after that 96-97 season was in that first Gilbert Arenas-Antoine Jameson playoff-making season of 2004 2005. So what the Bullets did in 96-97 ended up being fool's gold, ended up being a mirage, ended up being a a mere one-season surge that was basically never heard from again. But I remember the optimism that spring. I remember how I felt as a Bullets fan that spring. And it's one of the great feelings you ever have in sports, right? When your team is a young team, 
and a team on the rise. And in theory, anyway, a team to be reckoned with, even though that ended up not being the case. But on that Bullets team, 96-97, you had Chris Weber, Jawan Howard, Rod Strickland, George Murison, Calbert Chaney, Tim Legler, and yes, Ben Wallace, who wasn't much of a factor that year, but of course ended up becoming one of the all-time great defensive players in the NBA. And has one of the great Afros in recent NBA history. So congratulations to all of the new electees to the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. All these guys remembered for all kinds of different things, but I know for me, I'll remember at least some of them for their roles on the 1996-97 Bullets team. Now, a man who I know appreciates that Bullets team and maybe even had an Afro comparable to that of Ben Wallace back in the day is John Grandland of Real Broker. You know, in a lot of ways, he's like the Ben Wallace of local real estate, swatting away the competition, swatting away situations in which people can't sell homes. You see, John G is next level. He has unique systems, a list of ready buyers, and the ultimate guarantee John Grandlin promises that if he can't sell your home at a price that you agree on, he will buy your home himself and he will back this up in writing. So if you need to sell your home, have been trying to sell your home and it's just not moving, contact John Grandlin and see what he can do for you. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from. You literally can choose your discount, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. Zero commission. I've been telling you about that. Some conditions do apply. Here's what James, who was having a hard time selling his condo, had to say about John Grandling. Quote, my wife and I would highly recommend John for placing your home on the market. With our previous broker, we had our condo on the market for three months without an offer. In our second attempt to sell our home, we made a wiser decision and chose John. After about a week on the market, we already had two offers. He's a real pro, has a keen understanding of the business and the latest marketing techniques to get a property sold end quote. Find out what John Grandlin can do for you. You have nothing to lose. To learn more and to get the value of your home, simply visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. Or better yet, give John Grandlin a call right now. Tell him that Al Galdi sent you and understand that you calling John Grandlin helps out this podcast. The number is 703 703- 537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland of Real Broker. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. So the Washington football team held its 2021 rookie minicamp on Friday and Saturday. Ron Rivera speaking via Zoom press conference after each practice. There's a lot to go through. But before we get to the actual rookie minicamp, we have another acquisition made by Washington since the last time we spoke on this podcast. News breaking on Friday that Washington is signing free safety Bobby McCain. Remember, it was last Monday, May 10th, that Washington hosted free agent visits from two recently cut veterans in left tackle Charles Leno Jr. and free safety Bobby McCain. Well, sure enough, Washington ended up signing both players. And Ron, over the course of these rookie minicamp Zoom press conferences, address both signings. More on Leno in a bit, but let's start with McCain, who's getting a one-year deal according to his agent, Drew Rosenhaus. It's real simple. I love this signing. This is a nothing-to-lose, so-much-to-potentially-gain kind of signing. The Miami Dolphins released McCain on May 6th. Bobby McCain played for a 2020 Dolphins defense that was very good against the pass. McCain, last regular season, started 15 of the Dolphins' 16 games, was number two on the team 
in defensive snaps. Played on 89.26% of Miami's defensive snaps. He did this, McCain did, for a Dolphins team that finished number six in the NFL in pass defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. And get this, number one in the NFL in lowest opponent's third down efficiency. No defense last regular season was better on third downs than the Dolphins defense. McCain, for that Dolphins defense, was number two in defensive snaps. Also, Bobby McCain is relatively young. He's going into just his age 28 season. He has been mostly durable. Six seasons with the Dolphins, 2015 through 2020. McCain played in 87 of a possible 96 regular season games. He, in the 2019 season, played in just nine games due to a shoulder. That's about it in terms of an injury plague season for Bobby McCain. Also, Bobby McCain offers, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Rod Rivera's favorite thing. McCain for the Dolphins played both free safety and nickel corner. In fact, McCain's best single season overall grade with the Dolphins for Pro Football Focus was a 76.4 in 2017 when he was a nickel corner. And Bobby McCain, in theory, fits the Ron Rivera culture. Bobby McCain was a captain for the Dolphins last season. And it's a great story. Dolphins took McCain in the fifth round of the 2015 draft out of Memphis. He played for the Dolphins for six seasons, including being a regular starter for the Dolphins over his final three seasons with the team. Why not sign a guy like this to a one-year deal? Again, nothing to lose. Like, even if Bobby McCain ends up being a total flop, it's a one-year contract that almost certainly is just for a handful of millions of dollars. This is not some onerous salary cap consuming contract. It's a one-year deal. Ron on Saturday on Washington signing Bobby McCain. Give us another player. Uh, we have some open spots. We're looking for some open competition. We're looking for some guys that have position flex that will fit into what we're doing. There was the phrase that pays. Position flex. Position flex. Yes. And now take a listen to this. Ron on Saturday on if he has any notion of how the free safety position will shake out. Um, the, the big thing for me is, uh, is again, guys that have position flex. Um, the more spots you can play, the more opportunities you'll have to get on the football field. <laughs> there it is again. Position flex. Position flex. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You, you cannot get enough of the Ron Rivera fixation with position flex. But you know what? Position flex is a very good thing, right? You want options with what you can do with your players. Washington, of course, already had options at free safety. DeShazer Everett going into his age 29 season. Last regular season played in 11 games with six starts. It was DeShazer who took over for the fail that was Troy Apke as Washington starting free safety over the first five games of the season. DeShazer started each of the next four games, then missed two consecutive games due to an ankle injury, then started the next two games, but then was placed on the reserve slash injured list on December 17th due to a chest injury. That gave us Jeremy Reeves, who's going into his age 25 season. Reeves last season started each of Washington's last three regular season games and started the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round. And know this about Jeremy Reeves. He last regular season registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 84.1, highest single season overall grade for a Washington safety since Sean Taylor's 84.9 in 2007. Think about that. So who knows if Bobby McCain starts over either DeShazer Everett or Jeremy Reeves. And also, what if the safety position is more flexible than a free safety and a strong safety, right? Ron loves his position flex. Consider this. 
Washington, prior to Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio taking over for Washington for years, had it so that there really wasn't that much of a difference between the free safety and the strong safety. This is one of the things that used to be said a lot during the era of the 3-4 base defense for Washington. Well, how about this? Ron on Saturday, on how much in his and Jack's defensive system is there a distinction between strong and free safety? It sounds like things may be changing. Well, it's interesting because, you know, in, in, in talking with Jack about some of the philosophies going forward is that, you know, what you love to do is have, have safeties that you can rock and roll. In other words, you know, they just come down or drop back. They don't have to sit there and crisscross all the time. You know, it, it's one of the things that, that, that you want to be able to control is that when your opponent motions one guy, you're not shifting four guys. You know what I'm saying? So if you have guys that, that are interchangeable, that can play left and right as opposed to only free and strong, uh, that gives you an advantage. Um, and, and we can do it either way. Um, the fewer people to move on your defense, the better it is for you as well because then your disguises are a lot easier. A lot of times when the guy motions and everybody goes, oh, they're in man. Well, if, if the guy motions, you start, all you do is rock and roll. Now they really can't tell whether you're in man or, or zone. So there's a, there's a lot of benefits to that. So notably, it sounds like Washington may be going back to there being less distinction between free safety and strong safety, meaning that we maybe just need to look at all of these safeties as safeties, you know, i.e. Cameron Curl, Landon Collins, Bobby McCain, DeShazer Everett, Jeremy Reeves, Derek Forrest, who Washington took in the fifth round of the 2021 draft out of Cincinnati, and yes, Troy Apke. Uh, like, that's the way to be thinking about safety. They are all part of the same mix, and Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio just plan on starting the two best out of that mix. We'll see. Now, also over the weekend was the Washington football team on Saturday officially announcing the signing of unrestricted free agent offensive tackle Charles Leno Jr. We knew that this was happening. Leno's camp confirmed this last week. They contract a one-year $5 million deal, according to Leno's agent. This is, like Washington signing of Bobby McCain, a total no-brainer signing, in my opinion. Low cost, low commitment, high upside. Charles Leno Jr., who was released by the Chicago Bears two Mondays ago, May 3rd, was a staple at left tackle for the Bears and was incredibly durable. Leno, over his final six seasons for the Bears, 2015 through 2020, played in all 96 regular season games. He, for the last 93 of those games, was the Bears' starting left tackle. Uh, Charles Leno Jr. isn't that old, going into just his age 30 season. And Charles Leno Jr. gives Washington incredible depth at left tackle, really continues this transformation of the Washington offensive line going from having had paper-thin depth to being potentially the second deepest position group on the team after the defensive line. Like, you just think about the left tackle spot now. Washington has as options, right? Leno, Cornelius Lucas, the second-round rookie Samuel Cosme, Jaron Christian, maybe Sadiq Charles, if Charles is going to play tackle and not guard or play tackle in addition to playing guard. Ron on Friday on what Washington signing Charles Leno Jr. means. Gives us more depth. You know, it gives us an opportunity to fill, um, you know, some of the other basic needs that we, we, we have. And, and again, having another guy that's, uh, been a very durable veteran player. Um, I, I just don't think you can have enough quality offensive line depth. You know, last year we were very fortunate at one point, including, um, the practice squad guys, we had 16 offensive linemen. Um, you know, uh, we had, I believe 10 guys that were active and six on the practice squad. And, and I just feel that that was a, a big plus for us. And I think down last year down the stretch, it really helped us in terms of 
being able to practice, but more importantly, be able to, 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 to field quality starters with quality backups. And, and, and so the more we can get, uh, you know, and the more guys that we can have at, at specific positions, the, uh, the offensive line being one of them, um, we're going to continue to try and do that. One thing that has become crystal clear at this point in Washington's offseason is there were two main things that Washington was trying to upgrade this offseason, right? I'm not talking about positions. I'm talking about like two generic things about the team that Washington wanted to elevate. One was the athleticism. The other was the depth. Washington so clearly has attacked making the team more athletic and making the team deeper. When you look at what has transpired along the offensive line, at receiver, at now safety, Washington is oozing depth at these positions in a manner in which Washington hasn't in a very long time. Now, we'll see to what extent this depth ends up being quality depth, right? But on paper, Washington has depth now at a lot of different position groups. Now, some you could argue there's not a lot of depth, right? Like tight end, there's zero proven depth beyond Logan Thomas. But I think about like even quarterback, I mean, potentially you're three deep with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen. Offensive line, maybe the deepest that unit has been in years. Receiving core, you've got depth. You've got lots of options. Defensive line, already deep. Secondary now is oozing depth in a manner in which a Washington secondary hasn't had depth, it feels like, in a very long time. This was a definite goal for Ron Rivera and his front office and coaching staff this offseason. Make the team deeper, in addition to make the team more athletic. Now, one of the more notable aspects of Charles Leno Jr.'s public comments last week upon him agreeing on the deal with Washington was Leno saying that he signed with Washington in part because of Ron Rivera. And yes, I know, stuff like this gets said when players join new teams all the time. But I don't think that Leno saying this should just be disregarded. Ron has a very good reputation. Ron has a very high approval rating. And it's not that far-fetched that someone like Charles Leno Jr. would choose to sign with Washington, at least in part because of Ron Rivera, and also who is with Ron, his offensive line coach, John Matsko, who, as we've talked about, is a very accomplished offensive line coach. Ron on Saturday on Leno having said that he signed with Washington in part because of Ron. Um, well, it's cool um, because I, I, I think guys are seeing that, that we're trying to do things a different way. We're trying to do things a better way. You know, one of the things that we worked on last year was the way we practice. And, and, and I think our players really got hold and had, had, a, had a good feel for it because, you know, as the season progressed, we started taking more and more care of our players. Uh, we got out of the full padded practices early. We got out of the helmeted practices early as well. So it was, and the emphasis really was, was on learning and understanding and knowing the game plan and how to attack our opponents. So, um, I think, you know, he probably called guys that he knew that, that, that are playing for us and asked them what they thought. Um, I know he talked to a couple of coaches that I've worked with. Um, and, and I think that, you know, they, they, they told him, Hey, this is a guy that gets it. So I, I appreciate him saying that. I really do. Um, you know, we have a good staff of guys that, that I think also understand and, and, and feel that, you know, there is a right way to do it. And that's how we're going to do things the right way. So Ron said what we just heard after Washington's second rookie minicamp practice. What about one of those rookies, Samuel Cosme? How does Washington signing Leno impact the likelihood of Cosme being Washington's starting left tackle this coming season? Here was Ron on Friday on that. Um, it'll create a lot of um, competition. Uh, I think more so than anything else. It'll give Sam another veteran guy to watch and learn from. 
Um, and again, more competition. And, and what it does too is it, it just shows that, you know, again, with quality depth, if we get the type of depth we're looking for, um, we'll have guys that can play more than one position. You know, they'll have that position flex. And so who knows? Uh, we'll see what happens. There it is again. Position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Exactly. Look, Cosme has some things that he needs to clean up. Former Washington tight end Logan Paulson talked to us about that on last Wednesday's installment of the podcast, episode 61. But if Cosme is legit, then he'll ultimately be Washington's starting left tackle. If not this coming season, then the following season. The concerns with Cosme have to do with the perceptions that he can be soft, that he gives inconsistent effort, that he doesn't consistently live up to his physical gifts. Remember, he's one of the physical freaks who Washington drafted. Samuel Cosme is one of the freaks. Uh, the job of Ron Rivera and John Matsko with Cosme is going to get him to consistently live up to being a freak, get him to consistently live up to those physical gifts. But Cosme was a productive offensive tackle at Texas. Cosme was a three-year starter at Texas, and he was durable. He uh, was a starting offensive tackle for the Longhorns 2018 through 2020 off redshirting in 2017. Cosme, in his 2018 redshirt freshman season, started Texas's final 13 games at right tackle. He, in his 2019 redshirt sophomore season, started all 13 of Texas's games at left tackle. And Cosme, in his 2020 redshirt junior season, started the first eight of Texas's 10 games at left tackle, then opted out of the rest of the season to prepare for the 2021 draft. And Cosme, per Texas's internal statistics in the 2020 season, led the team in total first downs slash touchdown blocks at 25, led the team in total knockdown blocks at 28, and led the team in total intimidation slash dominant blocks at 12. And how about this too? Cosme went into his final game at Texas having only allowed one quarterback hit, one tackle for loss, and one sack the entire season. Cosme's pass block grades for Pro Football Focus steadily improved over his three seasons as a player for Texas from 82.8 to 86.0 to 90.7. So the onus is on Cosme to become the player he was drafted to be, but there is a body of work with this guy. He did play at a high level for a big-time program in that of Texas. The beauty, though, of the situation for Washington is it doesn't need Cosme to become the team starting left tackle by week one of the upcoming season. This is where the depth becomes such a beautiful thing. If Cosme does become Washington starting left tackle by week one or sometime soon after that, great. But if not, Washington has multiple options, including a guy who did a very nice job at left tackle for Washington last season in Cornelius Lucas, and now Charles Leno Jr. Options are always a good thing. Just as a big supporter of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. George Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. So the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including a very special and cutting-edge option for dealing with skin cancer called superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT 
is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sends you that phone number again, 301 396 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so in terms of Washington's actual rookie minicamp on Friday, and Saturday. Here was Ron Rivera on Friday on what stood out with the rookies on Friday. And you'll hear Ron talk up the athleticism of Washington's 2021 first round pick, linebacker Jamin Davis, and the team's 2021 second round pick, offensive tackle Samuel Cosme. Well, what I really appreciated was their athleticism. Um, really pleased with what we got to see as far as, you know, the limited opportunities, but just trying to pop around from one position to the other. Um, and see the, the certain things that, um, I remember about these guys, you know, uh, watching Jamin, uh, Davis, you know, just the realization, just how explosive, uh, he is, how, uh, flexible he is through the hips in terms of his turning and movement motions. Uh, those look really good. Um, watching, um, um, Cosme was, you know, watching Sammy out there practice, I, I thought was, was really cool. A, a big, powerful guy that looked good. Um, you know, so, and that's what you, you kind of hope to see as you, you, in my opinion, as you go through and watch these guys go through their basic drills. It is well established by now the extent to which Washington in its 2021 draft took guys who are great athletes, but the trend of loading up on athleticism this offseason didn't start with the draft. The trend goes back to, say, signing Curtis Samuel in free agency. Also goes back to signing Samis Reyes, who was a part of the rookie minicamp. So the Washington football team on April 13th announced the signing of an unrestricted free agent tight end named Samis Reyes. Born in Chile, would be the first Chilean-born player in the NFL. Played college basketball at Tulane for two seasons, 2016-2017 and 2017-2018. Graduated from Tulane in 2018. Played for the Chilean national basketball team in 2019, and then in May 2020, decided to try what he had been told to try for a while, the sport of football. Reyes spent 10 weeks training at IMG Academy in Florida, then worked out in front of scouts at the University of Florida's Pro Day on March 31st. The idea was for him to enter the NFL via its International Player Pathway Program, in which players allowed into the program are allocated to NFL teams in one division in each conference. Washington actually received a player this way, received a German defensive lineman, David Bada, in July 2020. However, Reyes did so well at Florida's Pro Day that Washington flat out signed him as an unrestricted free agent. And Reyes doing so well at the Florida Pro Day had to do with his athleticism. Reyes, per the relative athletic score metric that has become a big deal, tested as the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. Reyes at the Florida Pro Day generated measurables that included the following. Height of 6'5 and 3 eighths, weight of 260 pounds, 40-yard dash time of 4.65 seconds, bench press of 31 reps of 225 pounds, vertical jump of 40 inches. Athletic freak is Samis Reyes. Rod Rivera on Friday on his initial impression 
of Sami's Reyes? Um, just a high energy guy. Um, you know, he's, he's got a lot to learn. He's got a lot of field to develop and understanding in terms of this game. Um, and it's fun to watch him out there. It really is. Uh, because you can tell he's, he's, he's trying to learn on the run and, and, and that would be a, that'll be a challenge for him, but I think it'll help him in the end. Um, you know, that's, we're throwing a lot at him these first couple of days, but it'll be good because, you know, it'll help him to integrate uh, a lot quicker uh, once, you know, he's there with the rest of his teammates. What about the fact that Reyes has never played football at any meaningful level? I mean, think about that, right? It's hard enough to make an NFL team as an undrafted free agent. This guy is trying to make an NFL team despite having never played football at any meaningful level. Reyes at his introductory Zoom press conference on April 14th said that he drove for DoorDash during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. He's trying to go from DoorDash to being a tight end on the Washington football team. But he is athletically gifted like few people on the planet. Can he be taught the sport well enough to where he can make the team and maybe even be some kind of a factor in 2021? Ron on Friday on what it's like to coach a guy in Reyes who is so new to football. Well, we've done that before. When I was in Carolina, we had F.A. Obata. Uh, and then last past season, we had David Bada. Um, both guys came to us from the NFL Europe. Uh, we were able to, to pluck Samus before he got into the program. Um, so we know what we have and we know what to expect. And, and, and this is a guy that's got a special skill set that, that we believe will fit it. Um, and we're going to work with him as much as we can to give him every opportunity to grow and become a, a player in this league. Also participating in Washington's rookie minicamp was the team's lone undrafted free agent, the team's lone UDFA, the team's lone UDFA, Jarrett Patterson, the running back at a Buffalo. He is small, Patterson at the Buffalo Pro Day, measuring as being just five, six and a half, but he was super productive at Buffalo. Three consecutive thousand yard rushing seasons for Buffalo, 2018 through 2020. Patterson over his three seasons for the Bulls averaged 6.11 yards per carry and totaled 52 rushing touchdowns. He's a local too. He went to St. Vincent Pilate High School in Laurel, Maryland. I said last week on the podcast that I believe that Jarrett Patterson is going to be a preseason favorite, an August hero for the Washington football team. Think Marcus Mason years ago. That's what Jarrett Patterson is going to be this coming August. I'm even more convinced of that now. Take a listen to the comp that Ron Rivera made on Friday. Ron on Friday on Jarrett Patterson. Well, I'm just going to mention uh, a specific player, Darren Sproles. I had an opportunity to be with Darren in, in San Diego, and this is who this young man reminds me of. He's, he's yeah, he's, he's 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 small, but he's explosive. He's dynamic. Um, he's got he's stout. He he looks like a football player. So uh, he's a guy that you know we'll give every opportunity to to see if he can make our football team. I, I like who he is. So how about that, Ron Comping, Jarrett Patterson to Darren Sproles. Now remember, Scott McLuhan once comped Matt Jones to Marshawn Lynch. So these comps only go so far. We need football players. Yes, thank you, Scott. Remember that? Scott used to say that all the time. He's a football player. We need football players. We need football players. Yes, we got you, Scott. But Ron saying that certainly stood out, right? The Darren Sproles comp for Jarrett Patterson. And look, Ron knows Darren Sproles. Like, this isn't just something that Ron pulled out of thin air. Ron was the San Diego Chargers defensive coordinator from 2008 through 2010. Never forget what Sproles did in the playoffs for the 2008 season. The 2008 San Diego Chargers, 
Those Chargers, North Turner as their head coach, Ron as the defensive coordinator, won the AFC West at 8-8, eight eight, then beat the Indianapolis Colts 23-17 in overtime in the wild card round. And that game was maybe the best game of Darren Sproles' career. He had 22 carries for 105 yards and two touchdowns, including the game-winning 22-yard touchdown run in overtime. And he had five receptions for 45 yards. So Ron mentioning Sproles in relation to Patterson means a lot. Again, I, I just can't get McLuhan comping Matt Jones to Marshawn Lynch out of my mind. We need football players. Yes, we heard you, Scott. Some odds and ends from the Washington football team's rookie minicamp. So we last Thursday learned of a COVID situation for Washington. The team was supposed to also have in the rookie minicamp five tryout players. Uh, however, one of those players tested positive for COVID-19. And so all five of the tryout players were not allowed to participate in the rookie minicamp. Additionally, Steven Montez was supposed to participate in the rookie minicamp, but he did not. It turned out Montez wasn't eligible and so Washington's quarterback at the rookie minicamp was Jordan Tamu, who played at Ole Miss in 2017 and 2018 and has had multiple stints with the Kansas City Chiefs as well as a brief period of time with the Detroit Lions. Ron on Friday on the COVID situation and on Washington going with Tamu and not Montez as the quarterback at rookie minicamp. Um, well, yeah, what happened was, um, you know, those guys had, had come in pretty much uh, in the same group and um, when we had picked them up and brought them to the hotel for the most part they were in the same group and one of them tested positive so you know out of an abundance of um of of, of, of caution you know we felt since those guys were contacted um that we were better off you know not taking a chance just trying to keep everybody safe and healthy the site of the washington football team's 2021 training camp came up after saturday's rookie minicamp practice the deal with richmond is done but that doesn't mean that Richmond isn't an option. He was Ron on Saturday on potentially going back to Richmond for training camp this summer. Well, there are some things that we are going to be doing, uh, this offseason. I don't want to get into them. You know, that's, um, that's part of what's, um, what we're working on right now. But, uh, you know, I have no issue with, with, with going away to camp. I've done it both ways where you've done camp from home, uh, or you've gone on the road. And, and I think both of them have their merits. Both of them have their challenges. Um, but you know, we are, we are planning to do some things next, uh, this coming training camp. Once we get all those details worked out, we'll let you guys know how it's going to be. But, um, again, as I said, I have no issues either way. Now, personally, I would not mind one bit if Washington held training camp in Ashburn. I think this stuff about going away for training camp, bringing teams closer together sounds great, but is very debatable. Do you know how many teams don't go away for training camp and do well? Plenty. I'm willing to believe that back in the day when the NFL was very different, that Washington going away to camp at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, brought George Allen's and Joe Gibbs's teams closer together. But that, to me, is a bygone era. Plus, the facility in Richmond really isn't that great. Like, if we're just being honest about things, Richmond is a beautiful city, but the actual facility at which Washington has been conducting these training camps ain't all that. Uh, and there's no bubble. There's no indoor practice facility as there is in Ashburn. So when you're in Richmond and there's rain, you either practice in the rain or you have a very compromised practice somewhere else. And the other thing, too, is the drainage at the Richmond site, at least from what I've seen, isn't all that special. So when it rains, you've got all kinds of mud puddles you've got to be navigating that day and maybe even in the days ahead. Ron on Saturday on the positives 
of going away for training camp? Well, because, uh, you know, you, you've got the guys, uh, they're away from, uh, specific distractions. Uh, it's an opportunity to, uh, to bond a little bit more as a team. Um, and you also get a chance to reach out to a different part of your fan base. Uh, it gets the guys used to traveling a little bit, uh, those types of things. And you don't tear up your uh, practice fields. So we'll see what happens with Washington football team training camp this year. Interesting that we're deep into May. Camp, in theory, will start in late July, and the site of camp still hasn't been determined. We do know Washington's regular season schedule for the 2021 season. It was last Wednesday that we had the release of Washington's 2021 regular season schedule. I talked about that in depth on last Thursday's installment of the podcast episode 62. I liked a lot about Washington's schedule. And just, you know, in terms of what stood out, right, you had a week nine bye. You had three primetime games. You had that bizarre dispersal of NFC East games for Washington. Washington's first NFC East game is hosting the New York Giants on Thursday night football in week two. That is Washington's only NFC East game over the first 13 weeks of the season. And then each of Washington's final five games in the 2021 regular season is an NFC East game. That could end up being a great gift to Washington in that if the team is peaking and relatively healthy toward the end of the regular season, then Washington can do a lot of damage within the division over those final five games. But conversely, if Washington is beat up and not playing at its best late in the year, then it's going to be hard to repeat as NFC East champion if those final five games come in a portion of the season in which the team is not at its best. Here was Ron on Saturday on his thoughts on Washington's 2021 regular season schedule. I think we got a fair shake for the most part. I mean, I, I, I appreciate opening up at home. I'll tell you that much right now. Um, even though the second one's on Thursday night, still at home. Um, the only real question mark I, I honestly do have. Well, one concern I do have is I'm, I'm not a big fan of playing on Monday night and then having to travel to the, to the West coast. That, that, that one I was a little concerned with, but I get it. Um, I do, you know, the big question mark is finishing with the five division games in a row, but I also get that their thought process is they think we're all going to be jumbled up at the end and we'll have a little round-robin tournament to get everybody excited about um, as far as that's concerned. So, I mean, we drew, you know, like they say, you know, you, you, you ride them as you draw them. That is true. You know, Ron's not wrong to make the round-robin analogy. That is essentially what those final five games will be for Washington because unless Washington is like 10-2 and two or 2-10, two and 10, Going into the final five games, those final five games are going to determine whether Washington wins the NFC East for a second consecutive season. And one more item from Washington's rookie minicamp, Norv Turner was at Washington's rookie minicamp practice on Saturday. I said Norv Turner. This is Coach Norv Turner. Yes, Norv Turner. Old Norval. How about that energy? This is Coach Norv Turner. Yes, I love it. Norv, of course, is Scott Turner's dad, is a former Washington head coach, right? Washington had Norv Turner as its head coach from February 1994 until December 2000, when Norv got fired with a winning record that season. Never forget that. Norv was 7-6 and six in the 2000 season when Dan Snyder fired Norv. Norv somehow lasted nearly seven seasons as Washington's head coach, despite making the playoffs just one time, 1999, and posting a regular season record of just 49-59 and one. The book on Norv is that he was a very good offensive coordinator, just not a very good head coach. That proved to be the case with Washington. Also was the case with the Oakland Raiders. He went 9-23 and over two seasons as Raiders head coach, 2004 in 2005. But don't forget this about Norv. He had success as head coach of the San Diego Chargers 2007 
through 2012. Do you know what Norv's record as Chargers head coach was? Really good. 56 and 40 in the regular season, three and three in the postseason. Not bad for Norville. This is Coach Norv Turner. Exactly, Norv. Ron Rivera knows Norv well. Ron was the San Diego Chargers defensive coordinator 2008 through 2010. Ron on Saturday on Norv Turner being at practice that day. Oh, it was great. Um, you know, with, with Scott Turner here and, and, and I haven't coached for Norv and, and actually a lot of our coaches have coached for Norv or coached with Norv. Um, you know, he's always had an open invitation. So, um, you know, this year he's, he's kind of making the circuit where he's visiting his family. Um, you know, he had a, has a daughter, uh, that was in, um, I think she was in New Orleans doing some stuff. He went and saw her and now he's out here seeing Scotty. And, uh, so when Scotty told me, Hey, we invited him to practice and it's kind of cool having coach around. You know, I was very fortunate to have worked for him and, and have him, uh, be part of my staff in, uh, Carolina, uh, very familiar with coach. Um, I really do value his opinion. So I think it's kind of cool to have him around to, to kind of look at some things and, and, and be able to talk to him about what's going on and what he thinks. Yeah. So Norv was back in the house on Saturday, back in Ashburn, Virginia, back at the Washington football team's team facility. You know, look, Norv is very well regarded, very well respected. The thing with Norv is always, well, is he a great leader of men? And plenty of people who played for Norv will tell you, no, actually he's not. Uh, if you caught my chat, with former Washington quarterback Gus Farratt back on episode 34 of the podcast. Gus talked about that at length in terms of his time uh, as a Washington quarterback under Norv Turner. But good to have rookie minicamp on Friday and Saturday. And this is kind of like the unofficial kickoff to the offseason practice portion of things here because in the coming weeks we will have OTA practices and the mandatory minicamp and then there's the break, but then comes training camp, wherever training camp ends up being the offseason still has a few months to go, that's true, but understand we are now past the halfway mark of the offseason. If you consider the offseason starting at the beginning of February and then ending at the end of July, we are now three plus months into the six-month offseason. That's good news. Football is closer than you think. We turn our attention now to the Capitals, for whom Game 2 against the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs is on Monday night, a 7.30 start. Who the Caps goaltender will be, we do not know. We do know that the Caps own a 1-0 lead in the series. Great job by the Caps in Game 1 on Saturday night. A 3-2 overtime win over the Bruins at Capital One Arena. So first of all, the Caps did get back two key players. Caps got back TJ Oshie and defenseman John Carlson, though did remain without Evgeny Kuznetsov and goaltender Ilya Samsonov. Oshie was back for game one off not having played in the Caps regular season ending 2-1 win over the Bruins at Capital One Arena last Tuesday night due to a lower body injury. And Carlson was back for game one off not having played in each of the Caps final two regular season games due to a lower body injury. So remember, the Caps, who in the closing days of the regular season were without Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom and Oshie and Carlson, had all those guys back and playing, and in many ways playing well, on Saturday night. But Kuznetsov and Samsonov did remain out. Caps were without those two guys for a sixth consecutive game. Each did not play in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons as the players were late to a team function. And each guy since then has been out due to COVID-19 protocols. Now, what was notable about Saturday was that Kuznetsov remained on the COVID-19 list, while Samsonov did not. Samsonov came off the list 
on Saturday. And head coach Peter Laviolette on Sunday did say that Samsonov is off the COVID-19 list and available to the team, but Laviolette would not confirm if that meant that Samsonov is an option at goaltender for game two in the series. Laviolette has been Belichicking it when it comes to the availabilities of players. I don't blame him for doing that, but we know next to nothing right now in terms of who's available, who isn't, that sort of a thing. Uh, the Caps did have Phoenix Copley serve as the emergency backup goaltender in game one. And on Sunday did recall a goaltender, recalled Zach Fucali from AHL affiliate Hershey. So is that a sign that Samsonov will not be available for game two? Could be, but not necessarily. We'll see. In the meantime, the Capitals on Saturday night ended up turning to Craig Anderson to win the game because the starting goaltender Vitek Vanacek got hurt. It's been one injury after another lately for the Capitals. Vanacek was the starter, right? And everyone knew that this was going to be the case. It was going to be Vanacek's net. That ended up lasting less than a full period. Vitek Vanacek stopped three to four shots on goal that he faced, then left the game in the first period due to a lower body injury. Craig Anderson, he who is in his age 39 season, he who started just two games for the Caps during the regular season, ended up playing the bulk of the game and ended up goaltending the Capitals to a victory. Just incredible to watch this unfold. Craig Anderson comes in for Vitek Vanacek, stops 21 of the 22 shots on goal that Anderson faces. What a job he did. Anderson, per natural stat trick, stopped four of the five high danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped all three of the medium danger shots on goal that he faced, stopped all 13 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. The lone goal that Anderson gave up was a power play goal by the Bruins forward Nick Ritchie, 16-38 into the second period, and that was a more than acceptable goal to allow. The puck sent toward the net, went off Ritchie, who was right in front of Anderson, and then squirted past Anderson. Okay, I mean, you don't like to see that happen, but it's certainly forgivable, and that was it in terms of Craig Anderson giving up any goals on Saturday night. Now, there certainly was some good luck that was on Anderson's side. There was a wrister by the Bruins center Patrice Bergeron from just above the left circle, 449 left in the second period. The shot went off the left post and then resulted in the puck, which Anderson could not locate, being loose in the crease, and somehow the Bruins didn't score. So yes, the puck luck odds were on the side of Craig Anderson at various points in that game. But the bottom line is, a guy who will turn 40 this Friday comes off the bench of having started two games the entire regular season and in a big spot, game one of a first round Stanley Cup playoff series, stops 21 of the 22 shots on goal that he faces. You can't be anything other than super pleased if you're a Capitals fan with the job that Craig Anderson did on Saturday night. Anderson at 39 years, 359 days, became the oldest goaltender to earn a win in the Stanley Cup playoffs for the Capitals, eclipsing the previous mark held by the immortal Mike Liut, who won Game 5 at the New York Rangers in the second round of the 1990 Stanley Cup playoffs to clinch that series at 34 years, 110 days. So Craig Anderson, by more than five years, bested the previous oldest age for a winning goaltender for the Capitals and a Stanley Cup playoff game. And here's the thing about Craig Anderson. Yes, he's old. No, he should not be your starting goaltender for any length of time at this point. But he does have a rich history in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Craig Anderson in the 2017 Stanley Cup playoffs started all 19 games for an Ottawa Senators team that lost to the Pittsburgh Penguins in seven games in the Eastern Conference Final. In fact, 
Anderson's performance in game one on Saturday night left him with a career postseason save percentage of 929. Believe it or not, that is number two in NHL history among goaltenders, each with at least 40 postseason games. Statistically speaking, at least through the prism of save percentage, Craig Anderson is one of the best postseason goaltenders in NHL history. So in that regard, what happened actually wasn't that surprising on Saturday night, even though I still would chalk it up as pleasantly surprising, the job that Craig Anderson ended up doing. But the Caps have got to get this goaltending situation figured out. Where is Vitek Vanacek from a health standpoint? What is the deal with Ilya Samsonov? I mean, organizationally speaking, he's not in a good place. I think people are furious with him and are getting fed up with all these off-ice issues that keep popping up. If you caught my chat with Peter Hassett, co-founder of the Great Capitals blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks, on Friday's installment of the podcast, episode 63, you could tell Hassett's been told some stuff. He thinks the Caps are going to be done with Ilya Samsonov in terms of viewing him as the goaltender of the future. Now, could that perception change? Sure. If Samsonov ends up starting a bunch of games and playing really well this postseason, yeah, I think that's going to change, okay? But the clock is ticking on Samsonov. I, I think there's a real aggravation with what he's put the team through over the last now two seasons. And if he doesn't end up being available this postseason and the Caps up end up going out in the first round because of the goaltending, you're going to have a lot of fingers pointed at Ilya Samsonov. But in the meantime, Craig Anderson is a hero and a guy who, regardless of what happens moving forward, should forever be remembered by us as Capitals fans for the job that Anderson did on Saturday night in relief. Caps did win the puck possession battle on Saturday night, and don't take that for granted. Caps per natural stat trick had 55 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' 52. Now, the Caps per natural stat trick did have just five high-danger 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Bruins' eight, but the Caps winning the puck possession battle overall is significant because the Bruins in the regular season were elite in terms of puck possession. Boston, the regular season, was third in the NHL in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage at 54.2. So Boston in 5-on-5 situations during the regular season largely controlled play and did so at a clip better than all but two teams in the NHL. So the Caps bested the Bruins in this regard on Saturday night. Mattered and was impressive and hopefully continues to go. In terms of the Caps' three goals in the game. So this is what the Stanley Cup playoffs are about. You know, not always the goals of beauty, the goals of skill and speed. Sometimes the dirtier the goal, the better the goal. Sometimes the grimier the goal, the better the team ends up doing. And really two of the three Caps goals, the Caps' second and third goals were what you call dirty, greasy, you know, puck luck kind of goals. It doesn't have to be a thing of beauty. They all count the same. So the game winner, Nick Dowd, game winning even strength goal, 441 into overtime. Tom Wilson entered the puck into the Caps' offensive zone, passed the puck to TJ Oshie for a one-timer above the high slot, and the puck simply went off Dowd, who made his way into the low slot to essentially post up Bruins defenseman Kevin Miller right in front of Bruins goaltender Tuka Rask. Like, there's nothing pretty about that. There's a lot of puck luck involved in something like that. You credit Dowd for having the wherewithal to make his way into the low slot and to put himself in position to have the puck bounce off him, but that's hockey. Like, goals, a lot of goals, especially in the postseason, are scored that way. That's how the game-winning goal ended up being scored. How about the Capitals' second goal? Defenseman Brendan Dillon's even strength goal, 844 into the second period for a 2-1 Caps lead. Another classic puck luck goal. Dillon from the left point just sent the puck toward the net. The puck went off the stick 
of Bruins defenseman Jeremy Lozon, on whom Alex Ovechkin essentially was posting up, and the puck went into the top right corner of the net, past the Bruins goaltender to Garras. The goal was actually initially credited to Ovechkin, but then changed to being Dylan's goal. Again, nothing pretty. There's no real skill involved in something like that, other than Ovi just trying to park himself in the slot there, but it was effective. The Capitals ended up scoring. Goal number one was the only kind of like non-puck look, you know, skill-based goal scored by the Caps, and it was scored by Tom Wilson, who has skill, but of course is not always known for that skill. But Wilson, even strength goal, 622, into the first period for a one nothing Caps lead. The goal coming on a three-on-two Caps rush initiated by the stick of Bruins defenseman Charlie McAvoy breaking, causing a Bruins turnover in the Caps defensive zone. A give-and-go between Wilson and TJ Oshie resulted in a stickless McAvoy leaving Wilson to tend to Oshie, leaving Wilson open in the left circle. Oshie passed the puck back to Wilson, who deposited a wrister into the top right corner of the net, past the Bruins goaltender, to Garask. So if you really want to be negative and you really want to be a buzzkill, you can say that each of the Capitals' goals was a result of luck. Goal number one was due to a broken stick by the Bruins defenseman Charlie McAvoy. Goals two and three were puck luck goals. Go ahead and say that if you want, but that's the postseason. That's the Stanley Cup playoffs. You don't have to apologize for scoring goals this way. That's hockey. That's the way it goes. This kind of stuff certainly has gone against the Capitals many times over the years. So no need for the Capitals to apologize for this stuff working in the Capitals' favor, at least on Saturday night. I thought Alex Ovechkin had a very good game one. Remember Ovi, right? Coming off having missed seven of the Caps' final nine regular season games due to a lower body injury, but he was active and he was impactful. Had a secondary assist, had a team high tying four shots on goal, had a team high eight shot attempts, had four hits, and Ovi finished second on the Caps' and 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 62.5. Ovi on the ice during 5-on-5 play on Saturday night. Caps totaled 20 shot attempts for 12 shot attempts against. So very good to see that with Ovechkin. And he was part of a top line with Nicholas Backstrom and Anthony Mantha that was excellent in terms of puck possession. The Ovi-Backstrom-Mantha top line played on the ice together in 5-on-5 play for 13 minutes, 7 seconds. The Capitals, over those 13 minutes, 7 seconds, had a shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick of 70.83. 17 shot attempts for, 7 shot attempts against. That top line looked really good. Laviolette went with Ovechkin, Backstrom, Mantha as the top line. Second line was Connor Sheary, Lars Eller, Michael Roffel. Third line was Daniel Sprong, TJ Oshie, Tom Wilson. Fourth line, Carl Hagelin, Nick Dowd and Garnett Hathaway, and I thought Laviolette mixed them right for game one. You know, it's hard to complain about that stuff. Uh, Mantha, I mentioned him, you know, he came to the Caps from the Detroit Red Wings with a very good reputation in terms of puck possession, and he's lived up to that so far in his tenure with the Caps. Mantha, number one on the Caps on Saturday night, and five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. The defense pairs for the Caps on Saturday night, no surprises. Top pair, Dmitry Orloff and John Carlson. Second pair, Brendan Dillon and Justin Schultz. Third pair, Zdeno Chara, the former Bruin, of course, and Nick Jensen. And that third pair was really good. Chara and Jensen did a terrific job on Saturday night. Chara and Jensen tied for third on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 61.76. 21 shot attempts for 
13 shot attempts against. Chara and Jensen tied for first on the Cavs in block shots. Each had three. Chara had three hits. Jensen had four hits. I thought the Cavs did a nice job in game one on the Bruins' top line, the perfection line. David Posternock, Patrice Bergeron, and Brad Marchand. Those three guys held pointless at even strength. Now, those three guys, when playing together in five-on-five play, did generate an overall shot attempt percentage that was good, 14 minutes, 52 seconds. The perfection line did have a shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick of 60, 18 shot attempts for 12 shot attempts again. So, you know, maybe some luck involved there. It's not like the Capitals thoroughly outclassed the perfection line, but did a good enough job, that's for sure. And like, if you can keep those guys off the score sheet, Pasternak did have the primary assist on the Richie second period power play goal for the Bruins. But beyond that, the perfection line kept off the score sheet. And the Capitals, I think, deserve credit for that. Capitals also deserve credit for being very physical, out-physicaling the Bruins. It was an ultra-physical game. 92 combined hits between the two teams. But the Caps got the better of the Bruins in this regard. Caps finished with 51 hits to Boston's 41. The Caps 51 hits tied for the seventh highest total in a playoff game by the Caps since the NHL started tracking hits in the 2005-2006 season. The top hit men for the Capitals, Michael Roffel and defenseman Brendan Dillon, each had a team high six hits in the game. The big complaint would be this. The Capitals won despite committing too many penalties. Caps had four minors to the Bruins one. Three of the Caps' four penalties were by defensemen. Defenseman John Carlson had a delayed game puck over glass penalty, 7.58 into the first period. Defenseman Justin Schultz committed a tripping penalty, 16.42 into the first period. And defenseman Dmitry Orlov committed a high-sticking penalty, 15.21 into the second period. You don't normally see a lot of penalties called in the Stanley Cup playoffs. So when you commit four, that's actually a lot for a playoff game. That three were by your defensemen was disappointing, and that the Bruins only had one was disappointing. Caps ended up going just three or four on the penalty kill, 0 for 1 on the power play. So that would be the big nit to pick. But beyond that, I mean, especially given still no Kuznetsov, still no Samsonov, Craig Anderson ends up having to be your goaltender. The Capitals deserve a lot of credit for this victory on Saturday night. 1-0 doesn't mean much in a best-of-seven Stanley Cup playoff series. Heck, 2-0 doesn't mean much. We've learned that over the years as Capitals fans. But very nice to see the Caps get the win on Saturday night. And whoever ends up being available on Monday night, if the Caps can get this up to 2-0, you know, this is not an easy Bruins team. This is not a great matchup for the Capitals. You stake yourself out to a 2-0 lead. I know, you haven't clinched anything. You're not guaranteed anything. But obviously, a very nice position to be in going up 2-0, having to just win two of the final five games in the series. So, how about our Wizards? The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, those guys, our guys. The Wizards did it and then some. They not only clinched a spot in the Eastern Conference playing tournament, the Wizards ultimately clinched the number eight seed in the Eastern Conference. And if you know your play in tournament rules, you know there is great significance in being the seven or eight seed as compared to being the nine or the 10 seed. But let's take a step back for a moment and just appreciate what the Wizards just pulled off and they're now concluded 2020, 2021 regular season. The Wizards began the season three and 12. Then went 10 and 6 to get to 13 and 18. Then though went 4 and 14 
to fall to 17 and 32. And the Wizards end up ending their regular season with a 17 and 6 stretch. 17 wins over the final 23 games to get to 34 and 38 and the number eight seed in the Eastern Conference. The Wizards on Sunday afternoon clinching the eight seed in the Eastern Conference with a 115-110 win over the Charlotte Hornets. This off what happened on Friday night when the Wizards clinched the final spot in the Eastern Conference playing tournament with a 120-105 win over the Cleveland Cavaliers. So here's what we're looking at now. The Wizards as the Eastern Conference's number eight seed will play at the number seven seeded Boston Celtics on Tuesday night at nine. This is part of, yes, the NBA's first ever play-in tournaments in each conference for the NBA playoffs. In case you're new to all this, the NBA Board of Governors on November 17th unanimously approved play-in tournaments for each conference for the NBA playoffs for just this season. Now, maybe this continues you know, into future seasons. But for now, this is just a this season thing, just a 2020-2021 season thing. The play-in tournament in each conference consists of seeds number seven through 10. Seeds number seven and eight each has two games to win one game to advance to the NBA playoffs. Seeds numbers nine and 10 each has to win two consecutive games to advance to the NBA playoffs. So that's the advantage. There's a real advantage of being seven or eight as compared to being 9 or 10. The Wizards game at the Celtics on Tuesday night is what's called the 7-8 game, in which the winner is the number 7 seed in the conference. So the Wizards could actually get the 7 seed in the Eastern Conference, but even if the Wizards lose at Boston on Tuesday night, the Wizards still have another shot to make the NBA playoffs. The loser of the 7-8 game hosts the winner of the 9-10 game. The 9-10 game in the Eastern Conference will be the 10-seeded Charlotte Hornets at the 9-seeded Indiana Pacers Tuesday night at 6.30. The winner of that game, the loser of 7-8 versus the winner of 9-10, ends up being the number 8 seed in the conference. So it sounds probably a little more complicated than it actually is. Here is the specific language, though, that we are to use. The Wizards are not yet in the NBA playoffs. They are, though, in the NBA postseason. Forever, the words playoffs and postseason have been interchangeable. Not this season, not in the NBA. The postseason includes the play-in tournament and the NBA playoffs. The NBA playoffs, those are just the NBA playoffs. So mind your P's and Q's when it comes to what the Wizards have made. But the Wizards are in a postseason for the first time since the 2018 NBA playoffs when the Wiz lost to the Toronto Raptors in six games in the first round. As for the Wizards' two games over the weekend, the team's final two regular season games. So Friday night, you had that 120-105 win over the Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards led by just two points at the half, but then never trailed in the second half, thanks to winning the third quarter 33-20. The Wizards led by 19 points in the fourth quarter, held the Cavaliers to just 10 of 36 on threes. Wiz went to 7 of 25 on threes themselves, but 34 of 64 on twos. Wizards had a decisive edge at the free throw line, 31 of 37 on free throws. Cavaliers 17 of 21 on free throws. Wizards also won the offensive glass big time, 12 offensive rebounds to the Cavaliers 7, 17 second chance points to the Cavs 10. Then came what we got on Sunday afternoon, the Wizards with a 115-110 win 
over the Charlotte Hornets at Capital One Arena. And how about the comeback by the Wiz? The Wizards, you know, it's so fitting, right? The Wizards came back to make the play-in tournament in the season overall. The Wizards overcame in this game to clinch the number eight seed, a 15-point third quarter deficit. Wiz were down 84-69, ended up ending the game on a 46-26 run. The Wizards won the fourth quarter, 36-20. Lots of heroes for the Wizards. We start, though, with Bradley Beal, back from his three-game absence caused by a left hamstring strain. He did not look well for a good chunk of this game on Sunday. Went just three of 11 on threes, five of 16 on twos. Beal, though, did finish with 25 points, six rebounds, and four assists versus three turnovers in 34-37 as a starter. And Beal came up big in the fourth quarter. In a fourth quarter that the Wizards won 36-20, Beal scored 13 points, including some big buckets down the stretch. A fast break driving layup with his left hand for a 109-108 Wizards lead with 326 left. A driving layup off the glass for a 111-110 Wizards lead with 253 left. Now, Beal did ultimately finish second to Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors in the scoring race. I think we kind of knew this was going to happen with Beal missing these recent games due to the left hamstring strain. But Beal does finish second in the scoring race, like I said, so he does end up leading the Eastern Conference in points per game. So there is that. Uh, Bradley Beal, number one in the East in scoring at 31.3. But the guts, the chutzpah, the moxie displayed by Beal playing through this hamstring strain, coming through in the fourth quarter with the 13 points, connecting on multiple big buckets over the final three and a half minutes of the game. Uh, a salute to Beal. That, that was, that was a gutsy effort. That's the kind of effort you remember as a Wizards fan. Beal with the injury, still playing, and he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect by a long shot. Uh, and you could argue maybe he shouldn't have even been out there. You know, that's another conversation you could have. Why not just save him, uh, for whatever game is next? for the Wizards in the play-in tournament. But the Wizards clearly wanted that eight seed, wanted to avoid having to win two consecutive games to make the NBA playoffs. And Beal was a part of the Wizards getting that eight seed, very much so. How about Russell Westbrook on Sunday? Of course, another triple-double. He had two more triple-doubles over the weekend. So in the win over the Hornets on Sunday, Westbrook, he gets to 23 points, 15 rebounds, and 10 assists versus three turnovers in 40 minutes, 11 seconds of playing time. Did go just two of eight on threes. Did go just nine to 12 on free throws. But another freaking triple-double for this guy. Uh, he had one in the win over the Cavs on Friday night. Westbrook in that game, get these numbers, 21 points, 17 assists versus one turnover. Yes, 17 assists versus one turnover for Westbrook in the win over the Cavs on Friday night. Also had 12 rebounds to go with three steals in 39-59. Now, he did struggle on threes again. So it was not a super efficient weekend for Westbrook in terms of his shooting, just one of five on threes on Friday night. So three of 13 on threes was Westbrook over the two games, but two more triple doubles. So he finishes the regular season with 38 triple doubles, single season and career franchise records. And, of course, he set the all-time NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. That number at 184 upon the completion of the regular season. Another thing with Westbrook is he ends up leading the NBA in assists per game in the regular season at 11.74. That is a single-season Wizards-slash-Bullets record. And that is the most assists per game for a player in an NBA regular season since John Stockton of the Utah Jazz averaged 12.33 assists per game in 1994-95. I mean, you got to go back a quarter century plus 
for the last time someone did as Westbrook did this season in terms of assists per game, 11.74. Just a tremendous season by Westbrook. You really wonder, had he not been as injured as it turned out he was early in the season with the quad, what this Wizards season would have ended up being. I mean, as it is, the Wizards got the eight seed. What are we talking about if Westbrook is healthy? for the entire year. Because he was not himself early in the season. We saw that. Remember, he wouldn't play in the second games of back-to-backs. And when he did play, he really wasn't that good. He would get these triple doubles, but they were really empty and meaningless. And it, w- it was really hard to get into what he was doing. You know, I remember having the conversation of, do you regret the trade? You know, if you could undo it, would you do it? John Wall and a protected first-round pick for Russell Westbrook. Well, what say us now when it comes to this trade and the season that Russell Westbrook ended up having. I mean, especially with Beal missing these games late in the season, Westbrook carried the Wizards at times down the stretch. And while he wasn't always super efficient, he did become more efficient as the season went on. I mean, I mentioned it when he did Friday night, 17 assists versus one turnover. I mean, let that sink in. 17 assists versus one turnover. That's insane. Uh, the Wizards bench, so key down the stretch of this season. So good once again over the weekend. So the win over the Hornets on Sunday, Robin Lopez. How about the season Robin Lopez ended up having with his old man game, with his 1980s game, you know, the jump hooks in the paint, that kind of a thing. Lopez on Sunday, 18 points on nine of 11 shooting and six rebounds and 26-32 off the bench. Lopez in that fourth quarter that the Wizards won 36-28, points on four or five shooting and five rebounds including three offensive boards. Speaking of delivering in that fourth quarter, Ish Smith was outstanding in the fourth quarter. In fact, Ish and Russell Westbrook were the only Wizards who played for all 12 minutes in that fourth quarter on Sunday. Ish in the fourth quarter connected on a big six-foot driving floater in the lane for a 113-110 Wizards lead with a buck 36 left. And Ish for the game ends up having 14 points on 7 of 11 shooting, eight rebounds, and seven assists versus one turnover in 32-03 off the bench. Ish nearly had a triple-double off the bench on Sunday. 14 points, eight boards, seven assists, just one turnover. Daniel Gafford was solid off the bench. Eight points, three assists, shooting five rebounds in 16 minutes, 25 seconds, though. He did have no assists versus three turnovers. But basically, if you've been following the Wizards, and we've been talking about this on the podcast, every game that the Wizards won during this 17-6 and surge to conclude the regular season, or at the very least in a good chunk of these 17 wins over the final 23 games of the regular season. You had the Wizards bench playing a key role, and you had this again on Sunday with Lopez and Ish doing as they did. You had this in the win over the Cavs on Friday night. Lopez in that game, great in the fourth quarter. 10 points, 5 of 6 shooting in the fourth quarter. Finished with 14 points, 7 of 11 shooting, and five rebounds. Gafford on Friday night, 12 points, three of five shooting, six to six on free throws, five rebounds, three blocks off the bench. Anthony Gill in the win over the Cavs on Friday night, eight of eight on free throws, two of four from the field. He finished with 12 points, five rebounds, and two steals off the bench. And Ish Smith, who was so much better second half of the season as compared to the first half of the season, he off the bench on Friday night, 11 points, five of 10 shooting, five rebounds, three assists, versus two turnovers. Uh, some credit to Rui Hachimura for his work over the weekend. Win on Sunday, two or three on three, 16 points, six rebounds. Win on Friday night, 14 points, seven to 15 shooting, 
and three rebounds. It just has been such a strange year for the Wizards. The horrible start, then better, then bad again, then good again. You know, the discrepancy between the Wiz versus the East versus the Wiz versus the West. The Wizards finished the regular season just 16 and 26 against the Eastern Conference teams, even with these two wins over the weekend. Uh, Wizards 18 and 12 against Western Conference teams. It makes no sense and yet it was the case. You know, the Wizards ended up having the regular season that the team had, despite Davies Bertans largely being a flop. Five-year, $80 million contract he gets resigned to last offseason. I'm not going to be a phony. I endorsed it. I know a lot of you listening endorsed it. And at least in season one, it did not work out. Now, the good news is Bertans has plenty of time to make up for this and to make it so that the Wizards don't regret that contract. But for now, this was not a good resign, okay? Bertans was not very good, not very impressive, this regular season. And it's not like he ended the regular season on some supremely high note. Uh, Bertans did start each of these final two games. On Sunday, three of seven on threes, 11 points, three rebounds. On Friday, just three of 11 on threes. Did go six of seven on free throws. Finished with 17 points. But it, it was not a very impressive season for Davies Bertans. And the fact that he showed up out of shape is a real discredit to him. Uh, that, to me, was inexcusable. You get an $80 million contract. I, I don't want to hear about the pandemic or anything else. Figure it out, pal. I mean, get yourself in shape. It's not that hard. And that he couldn't do that, that he shows up and he's talking early in the season about how I'm only at 60 to 70% conditioning. Just completely inexcusable. Uh, that, 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 to me, is, as a Wizards fan, that's hard to forget. You get a fat contract and you get fat and you get out of shape. That's not acceptable. I'm sorry. Uh, Alex Len, another weird thing about the season. Alex Len kept starting, and yet, like, he would barely play in so many of these games. Now, at times, he was very efficient, but like Alex Len on Sunday started for a 35th consecutive game. He played for four minutes, 40 seconds. Like, that's the, that's the way the usage would go for Alex Len at times. So that was odd. And remember, too, the Wizards remain lacking some key players. Howell Neto, by the way, did not play over the weekend, missed the final two games of the regular season due to a left hamstring injury that he was dealing with, right? Beal was dealing with his own left hamstring injury. The Wizards lost Denny Abdia to a right ankle fracture that was suffered on April 21st. The Wizards lost Thomas Bryant to a partial tear of his left ACL that was suffered on January 9th. And yet the Wizards find themselves in the NBA postseason, not the NBA playoffs, not yet, but in the NBA postseason with still a chance to get the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs. That is amazing. There are a lot of bigger picture conversations that we need to have with the Wizards. Is this truly a good thing that the Wizards rallied to at least make the NBA postseason? Or would the Wizards have been better off just losing a bunch of games, getting a bunch of ping pong balls, and hoping that finally the draft lottery luck falls the Wizards' way, especially with a draft that is set to be, it seems, very rich in terms of the top, say, four or five picks. Maybe you could argue that the Wizards would have been better off losing. I, though, would say that the Wizards did well is a sign that the Wizards are in a better state than we thought, and that if the Wizards can attract a significant piece this offseason, then the Wizards could really be a significant player in the Eastern Conference next year. That's why I don't think you should just completely dismiss all this as, well, it's meaningless, it's fool's gold. It could be, I'll grant you that, but it doesn't have to be. I think the really interesting thing about everything here is has this saved Scott Brooks's job? Because it felt for the longest time like Scott Brooks, not only was he not going to be back for next season, but that he wasn't even going to last the rest of this season. I certainly felt that way. And of course, he has lasted and he's going to be a coaching free agent this offseason. 
are the Wizards going to bring him back? Remember, he makes $7 million per year. So that's a conversation to be had. But for now, can we please enjoy this? The Wizards in the postseason, not the playoffs, but the postseason with a huge game at the Boston Celtics on Tuesday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Big weekends for the Capitals and the Wizards. A good weekend for the Nationals, who won a series for the first time in four series. It had been a while since the Nationals had won a series. In fact, you have to go all the way back to the three-game sweep of the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park, April 30th through May 2nd. For the last time, the Nats had won a series until we got what we got over the weekend. The Nats winning two or three games at the Arizona Diamondbacks. A 17-2 win on Friday night, then an 11-4 loss on Saturday night, but then a 3-0 win on Sunday to win the series and to make Davey Martinez proud of his boys. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, thank you, Davey. That's now our 16-20 and 20 on the season, still in last place in the National League East, but just three games behind the first-place New York Mets, who got swept at the Tampa Bay Rays over the weekend, and now are just 18-16. and 16 on the year. So a lot to get into with this National Series win. Let's start, though, with this, the decision that Davey Martinez and, I suppose, Mike Rizzo have to make when it comes to the Nationals' rotation. So Steven Strasburg is on the mend, and it looks like it's going to be activated sooner rather than later. This can change, but Strasburg on Sunday tossed four and a third shutout innings for AAA Rochester in a 2-1 loss for the Red Wings to the Buffalo Bisons in Trenton, New Jersey, in his first actual rehab start since the Nats on April 18th put him on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to April 15th with right shoulder inflammation. But he's been doing plenty of other work, and it sure seems like he's ready to come back. Now, Strasburg, it looks like, would not pitch in the Nationals' next series, this four-game set at the Chicago Cubs, but he certainly could be good to go from the Nats series after this upcoming one. And the next series is a three-game series against the Orioles at Nationals Park this coming weekend. So Friday night through Sunday afternoon. So perhaps Strasburg will be good to go for, say, game one of the series against the Orioles. But suffice it to say, Strasburg's coming back. I mean, if not for that series, then for the series after that. What's going to happen with the current five-man Nats rotation? Who's going to be the odd man out? Is there going to be an odd man out? Or might the Nats actually go with a six-man rotation? And the reason this is a thing is because Eric Fetty pitched the game of his life on Sunday. In this 3-0 win at the Diamondbacks, Fetty had, to me, the best start of his major league career in making perhaps his final start before being demoted again to the bullpen. You see, few guys in baseball have been jerked between starter and reliever more than Eric Fetty in recent seasons. And a lot of this has been Fetty's own doing. He has not been a particularly good pitcher at the major league level, but he's gotten better in recent seasons And he's pitched, I think, overall well so far this season. Fetty goes out there on Sunday and tosses seven scoreless innings on four strikeouts versus three hits, which were a double and two singles and two walks on 97 pitches, 60 of which were strikes. 12 of the 21 outs that Fetty recorded were via grounders. He looked poised. He looked good. He was effective. This was the Eric Fetty the Nationals have always wanted. Remember, the Nats spent a first-round pick on Eric Fetty, number 18 overall pick in the 2014 draft. And it's taken a while in terms of time, no doubt. 
but he also hasn't been given as much of a shot at the major league level as you might think. He's been jerked between starter and reliever, as I just said, and while he first pitched at the major league level all the way back in 2017, Eric Fetty's career innings total at the major league level is still just 233 and a third innings. That's it. That's a little more than a season for a good starting pitcher these days, 233 and a third innings. That's all he's accumulated at the major league level. So if it's taken this long, quote unquote, for Fetty to figure things out, he can be forgiven. Now, has he figured things out? We don't know, okay? Only time will tell on something like that. But I'll put it to you like this. Eric Fetty got shelled in his first start of the season. Six runs, five earned, and one and two-thirds innings in the Nats 7-6 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader on April 7th. Since then, Eric Fetty, over seven starts, has an ERA of 335, okay? And not all seven of those starts have been sparkling. And yet still, the guy's got a 335 ERA over his last seven starts since getting wrecked in his first start of the season. If he's finally now blossoming, if it's finally now clicking for Eric Fetty, do you really want to disrupt that by demoting him to the bullpen? And you might say, well, Galdi, can't they just send him to the minors? No, they can't. He's out of minor league options. So in order to send him to the minors, the Nats would have to expose him to waivers and he would almost certainly get claimed by another team. So Fetty's got to stay at the major league level. So what do you do? Do you go with a six-man rotation? I don't see the Nats doing that, although I suppose it's something they could try for at least a week or so just to see kind of what happens if somebody gets hurt or anything like that. Do you demote Joe Ross to the bullpen? I don't see the Nats doing that. They don't seem inclined to do that. I think Fetty's going to be the odd man out. And it's a shame, and I hate to see it happen to the guy because he's done a good job overall, all things considered. Now, with Joe Ross, he did get wrecked on Saturday night. This is what makes this also intriguing. Joe Ross pitched poorly over the weekend. Eric Fetty pitched quite well. So Ross in the 11-4 loss at the Diamondbacks on Saturday night gave up eight runs in four innings on eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles, three walks, one of which was intentional, and a hit by pitch versus five strikeouts. He did throw 55 of his 86 pitches for strikes, but he had a hard time keeping the ball low. Ross gave up three runs in the bottom of the first on a double and four singles, and then later in the inning issued the intentional walk. Ross gave up three runs in the bottom of the fourth thanks to allowing three consecutive batters to reach base with two outs as he issued a two-out hit by pitch of Paven Smith, issued a two-out walk of Josh Rojas on five pitches, and then gave up a two-out full count three-run homer to Eduardo Escobar despite him having been down in the count at one point, one, two. This was not a good outing for Joe Ross. It was his second blow-up start of the season. Remember, Ross had a 12-5 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park on April 19th, gave up 10 runs all earned in four into third innings. Now, the thing with Ross is, if you look at his other five starts on the season, so you put aside the two blow-ups, he's got an ERA of 163 over those five starts. So, you know, you can play with the math how you like, But the point would be, neither Fetty nor Ross has been outstanding. Fetty, though, was really good on Sunday. Ross was really bad on Saturday night. And the overall numbers do point to Fetty. Fetty's got the better ERA. He's got the better whip. Like I said, I think the Nats are going to stick with Ross. They've liked Ross more than Fetty, certainly in recent seasons. You know, the way this was set up going into the season was that Ross was going to be the number five pitcher in the rotation. And I don't know that Ross has done enough to lose that job and Fetty has done enough to get that job. But I just hate to see this happen with Fetty again because it may finally be clicking and it all may about to be 
not undone necessarily, but the growth is back to being retarded if he goes back to the bullpen and he's not pitching frequently and, you know, he's all out of sorts. So we'll see. And in some ways, it's a nice problem to have that Fetty's made the decision difficult. But you'd like to see the right call be made here to where whoever gets picked to stay in the rotation, assuming the Nats don't go with a six-man rotation and assuming that Strasburg is about to be activated, uh, that that person pitches well and doesn't make the Nationals regret pitching that person to stay in the rotation. In terms of the other Nationals starter, uh, on display at the Diamondbacks. Max Scherzer started the 17-2 win at Arizona on Friday night and was good again, albeit in a short outing, due in part to a sore throat. So Max tossed five scoreless innings on seven strikeouts versus two hits, both of which were singles and a walk on 85 pitches, 55 of which were strikes. We found out after the game, he was dealing with a sore throat and Davey just didn't want to chance anything, especially in a game that was a no-doubter. So Max only ended up going for the five innings and the 85 pitches. But the numbers remain outstanding for Scherzer. Eight starts now on the season. ERA at 210. Whip of 0.76. 68 strikeouts versus eight walks. Offensively speaking for the Nationals. So clearly a great night on Friday night. The night on Friday night was spectacular. 17 runs for the Nationals. You know, we've been waiting for the bust out for this offense. Uh, you can't say that it's happened just yet in terms of like the offense is here to stay, but clearly Friday night was the game of the season for the Nationals. Everyone basically getting in on the act to at least some extent. And then as the series went on, I mean, Saturday night was not nearly as good as Friday night and Sunday afternoon was really frustrating until late in the game. But actually at the end of this series, quite a few Nationals ended up having good series and not just because of what happened on Friday night. So let's start with the guy who was clearly the best of the bunch, Trey Turner, starting shortstop and number one batter in all three games in the series. He went seven for 13 with a homer, three doubles, three singles, and five RBI. Turner in the three nothing win on Sunday, three for four with a double, two singles, and an RBI. He had a two out single in the top of the third, a leadoff single on a one two pitch in the top of the sixth, and an RBI double in the Nats three-run eighth inning. Trey Turner now on the season over 157 plate appearances is batting 329, has a 369 on base percentage, has a 558 slugging percentage. You know, the power had kind of dipped down a bit in recent weeks. It was back to being up in this series, no doubt. Again, a home run and three doubles to go with three singles. How about Kyle Schwerber? The rise of all Schwerbs continued in this series. I've been mentioning this. So Kyle Schwerber was an at starting left fielder and number four batter in all three games in the series. He went five for 13 with a homer, four singles, two walks, a hit by pitch, and three RBI. Schwarber in the 17-2 win on Friday night reached base six times. He went three for four with a homer, two singles, two walks, a hit by pitch, and two RBI. And then Schwarber in the three nothing win on Sunday, two for four with two singles and RBI and a stolen base. What's funny is the in-between game, the loss on Saturday night, Schwarber was awful. He went 0 for 5 with three strikeouts, left eight runners on base, and yet still, he ended up going 5 of 13 in the series. Kyle Schwarber, over his last 10 games now, has raised his OPS for the season by 149 points. He's taken his OPS from 572 to 721. That is a significant leap, even though we're still early in the season. Like, that, that's fine. That's still significant. 149-point OPS increase over just 10 games. So Schwarber, it looks like maybe just maybe is busting out and is becoming the hitter that the Nationals signed him to be 
it's interesting. He's been the cleanup batter here lately. Again, number four batter in all three games in the series, and he lived up to that by and large. So did a good job. So great to see Schwarber doing better lately. Victor Robles had an excellent series as a batter. Starting center fielder and number nine hitter in all three games is Davey Martinez continues to do something I cannot stand, which is Robles batting in the number nine spot. I've wanted to see Robles as the leadoff batter. At the very least, though, he should be batting eighth. Like, if, if nothing else, he should not be batting ninth. This the gimmick thing of the starting pitcher batting eighth doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't work. The whole thing about you're a second leadoff batter if you're the number nine hitter in the lineup. No, you're not. You're the number nine hitter. You, you, you don't come to bat until maybe the third inning with the way things that can play out. That, that's not a, a, uh, an endorsement of you. That's an indictment of you if you're the number nine batter. I, I don't know why Davey is so down on Robles like this. You know, Robles, I know at times you have to say, well, he's got to play better. He's got to hit better. He's got to not make outs on the base paths. All of that is true, but he's been better. You know, the, the outs on the base paths, thankfully, have dried up. And Robles in this series, five for eight with four doubles, a single, a walk, and three RBI went two for two on stolen bases. His on-base percentage for the season now at 352. That plays. Let the guy bat leadoff. Do what was supposed to be done going into the season, which again was Robles in the leadoff hole. We were told this ad nauseum that Robles was going to be the leadoff guy. That's the way things were during spring training. And then Robles got a mere eight games as the Nats number one batter. The plug got pulled. And he, you know, with the exception of, I think like there was one game within the last few weeks where he was a number one guy again. That's it. Like the whole thing about Robles as a leadoff batter, Davey just won't go back to it for whatever reason. But Robles was good in this series. The win on Sunday, one for two with a double a walk and a stolen base. Robles in the blowout win on Friday night, two for two with two RBI doubles and a hit by pitch. He hit himself a really nice series. Also two Nats who didn't play in all three games did well in the series. Josh Harrison was the starting second baseman in games one and two. He in the 17-2 win on Friday night, three for seven with three singles and an RBI. He in the 11-4 loss on Saturday night, reached base four times, had a double, a single, and two walks. And Jan Gomes did well as the Nats starting catcher in games one and two in the series. Gomes was the Nats best hitter, in fact, in the 17-2 win on Friday night, five for six with a triple, a double, and three singles, threatened getting the cycle, missed it uh, without having the home run. And, you know, it felt like he might get it because the Diamondbacks pitched a position player, David Peralta, in the ninth inning. But uh, Gomes was only able to get a single out of that. Actually was down to the count at 1.02 before uh, coming through with a full count single off Peralta and what ended up being a Nationals three-run ninth inning. But big, big game for Gomes on Friday night and then in the loss on Saturday night, one for four with a single. Jan Gomes is slugging 488 on the season. You know, in a time in which there are so few good hitting catchers in Major League Baseball that the Nats have a catcher who's slugging 488, uh, that is great value. It's one thing to slug 488, like if you're a first baseman or something like that, but a catcher where there are so few good hitters, uh, that plays. That's a big advantage for the Nationals. Gomes done a really nice job as a batter. And then there are Juan Soto and Starling Castro. So, I got a kick out of this. The Nats in that 17-2 win at the Diamondbacks on Friday night finished with 22 hits and five walks, went 9-26 with runners in scoring position. All of these offensive exploits, and yet a lot of this happened despite Soto and Castro not doing much. Soto had just one hit, which is an RBI single and one walk. Castro went 0-6 with a walk, snapping his 11-game hitting streak. For Soto, the trend remains... It's not that he's been awful since he came off the 10-day injured list, but he's still not hitting for like any power. And the overall numbers certainly are not great. So Soto in the series, starting right fielder in all three games, 
three for 12 with three singles, three walks, and three RBI. That's not that bad, right? But Soto now, since coming off the 10-day injured list on May 4th, is batting 216. Yes, he has a 370 on base, but he's slugging just 297. He's not hitting for any power. It's just a bunch of singles. Soto has become Castro, getting some singles, but not hitting for any kind of power. And that's got to change, obviously. Like Juan Soto's a lot better than a 297 slugging percentage to say nothing of a 216 batting average. I was getting some walks, like I said, 370 on base since coming off the 10-day IL. I don't know how much of this, if any of this has to do with Soto still ailing. Remember, he was on the IL due to a left shoulder strain. But, I, you know, I think by now that that's kind of gone bye-bye. This is just a matter of timing and, you know, getting your swing mechanics down to where you want them to be. And we've not seen the Juan Soto we know, we know we're capable of seeing here uh, since he came off that 10-day injured list on May 4th. Uh, Castro, he had a really bad series. 0 for 14 with two walks. And like I said, that comes on the heels of Castro having had an 11-game hitting streak. In terms of the Nats bullpen in winning two or three at the Diamondbacks, actually was not a great weekend for the Nats bullpen. Three relievers in the blowout win on Friday night combined to allow two runs in four innings. Will Harris allowed a run in the bottom of the six. Paolo Espino, who was back with the Nationals, and that's on Friday recalling Paolo from AAA Rochester as the corresponding roster move to putting Patrick Corbin on the paternity list. Uh, Espino in the game on Friday night, giving up a run over two innings. But none of that really mattered, right? The Nats scored 17 runs. But then in the 11-4 loss at Arizona on Saturday night, four Nats relievers combined to allow three runs in four innings. Wander Suero, who was back pitching in this series for the first time since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to a left oblique strain. Suero pitched on Friday night, then pitched again on Saturday night. And in the Saturday night loss, gave up a two-out solo homer, David Peralta, in the bottom of the six. Also in that game, Austin Voth gave up a two-out two-run homer to Eduardo Escobar in the bottom of the eighth inning. But in the 3 nothing win on Sunday, Nats bullpen was great. Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand each tossing a scoreless inning. Hudson looking great again. Scoreless bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts to lower his ERA to 146 on the season. And Hand pitching for the first time since his three consecutive bad appearances that included two blown saves. A perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts. Those of Eduardo Escobar and Steven Vogt. So we can all calm down for now at least. When it comes to Brad Hand, that was a rough stretch that he had over those three appearances. Six runs, four earned in two and the third innings, but he actually looked really good on Sunday. Next up for the Nats, a four-game series at the Chicago Cubs. Cubs are 19 and 20, one, two, or three at the Detroit Tigers over the weekend. Game one, Monday night at 7:40. The former Cub, John Lester, gets a start. Nats in the series are going Lester, Patrick Corbin, Max Scherzer, and then Joe Ross, and then we shall see as the Nats have some decisions to make when it comes to their rotation. For the Orioles over the weekend, a series loss that ended with a win. O's lost 2-3 or to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 5-4 loss on Friday night. 8-2 loss on Saturday night. But a 10-6 win on Sunday afternoon to snap what had become a four-game losing streak as the Orioles, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, sir. O's now 17 and 23 on the season. So the Orioles pitching was all over the place in this series against the Yankees. We'll work backwards and start with the game on Sunday when the O's going with an opener did not work out so well. So reliever Adam Pletko served as the Orioles opener in the 10-6 win over the Yankees 
on Sunday afternoon. Pletko gave up four runs in the top of the first. That's not how you're supposed to open when you're the opener. Pletko allowing four runs in the top of the first on two homers, two singles, and a walk. But relieving Pletko was lefty Bruce Zimmerman, whom the O's on Sunday recalled from AAA Norfolk. And Zimmerman was terrific. One run in five and two-thirds innings on six strikeouts. And this is significant because Zimmerman came into the game with an ERA of 540 over six games, all starts so far in the regular season. Remember, Bruce Zimmerman sort of rose up during the exhibition season. Bruce Zimmerman is a guy who the O's got from the Atlanta Braves in the July 2018 trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to Atlanta. And Zimmerman, like I said, spring training darling, has struggled mightily so far this season, but he looked really good, actually, in relieving the opener uh, in the win on Sunday. In the loss on Saturday, the 8-2 loss Saturday night, Jorge Lopez, five runs, four earned in two innings. So another bad outing for him. Six hits, a homer and five singles, uh, issued two walks, issued a hit by pitch, had four strikeouts, threw 71 pitches, Lopez did, over the two innings. So Jorge Lopez continues to struggle, now has a 635 ERA and a 141 whip over eight starts on the season. We had Dean Kramer starting the 5-4 loss to the Yankees on Friday night. And Kramer was at least decent for a third consecutive start. He seems to be, and I'll stress that word seems, uh, to be trending in the right direction. So Kramer allowed two runs in five innings on four strikeouts versus five hits, which were two homers and three singles, and no walks. He threw 50 of his 77 pitches for strikes. Kramer, in his previous outing, the 4-3 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Camden Yards, uh, now two Sunday afternoons ago, so May 9th, Gave up three runs in five innings, but Kramer in that game allowed one run through five innings, was charged with two more runs in the top of the six, thanks to a one-out two-run double that Pletko gave up to Rafael Devers as Kramer had allowed back-to-back singles to begin that inning. So yes, those two runs got charged to Kramer, but if Pletko does a better job, that goes down as one run in five innings for Kramer. And then in Kramer's start prior to that one, 5-3 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 3rd, Kramer allowed one run in six innings. So maybe, just maybe, Dean Kramer is a young Orioles arm who's, you know, learning some things, developing as this season of tanking goes on. You know, that's what this season is for. It's for the young players to get experience and hopefully get better. O's got Kramer from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the package for Manny Machado in July 2018. Also of note from a pitching standpoint in the series for the Orioles was Keegan Aiken pitching in the 8-2 loss to the Yankees on Saturday night. Aiken pitching for the second time this season, and the outing was mixed. He tossed three scoreless innings, but then in the top of the six allowed three singles over the first four batters he faced, was pulled in favor of Tyler Wells, and three runs, all of which were charged to Aiken, were scored off Wells, who balked in a run and gave up a two-out, two-run single to Luke Voigt, despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. So Aiken's final line ultimately was three runs in three and the third innings, but like we just discussed with Kramer, it's a little more complicated. Aiken's been toggled between the major league level and AAA Norfolk so far this year. Aiken was thought to be a guy who was going to start the season as a starter in the rotation. Did not end up happening. He had a very bad exhibition season, but getting some cracks at things here lately as a reliever. Some notable performances by Oriole position players in this series loss to the Yankees. So Ryan Mountcastle, starting first baseman, number four batter in the win on Sunday. Good game for him. Two for four with four RBI. He had a two-out RBI double on a one-two pitch in the Orioles' two-run first. Had a first-pitch RBI sack fly 
in the Orioles three-run third, had a two-out, two-run single in the bottom of the eighth inning. So great to see all of that. Uh, we have not seen enough of that from Mountcastle so far this year. Mountcastle as a starting DH and number five batter in the loss on Friday night, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. So 150 plate appearances for Mountcastle on the season. He's batting just 218. He's got an on-base percentage of just 240. He's got a slugging percentage of just 338. Austin Hayes, starting left fielder, number two batter in all three games in the series. He went three for 11 with a homer, a double, and a single. The homer came in the loss on Friday night. Hayes in that game, solo homer in the bottom of the first off Yankee starter, Corey Kluber. Hayes has been good here lately. You know, Hayes had a leadoff triple on a 1-2 pitch in a one-run eighth inning for the Orioles in that 3-2 loss at the New York Mets last Tuesday night. Hayes on the season, 115 plate appearances. Uh, you know, the batting average is just 250. The on-base percentage is just 316, but he is slugging 471. So it's been good to see that with Austin Hayes. And then DJ Stewart, another one of these young players who's promising but has not played well so far this year. Game one of the series, a rare good game for DJ Stewart this season. The loss on Friday night, he has a starting right fielder, a number six batter, had a double, two singles, and a walk. But Stewart as a starting right fielder, a number four batter, and the loss on Saturday night, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, and then did not play in game three. So Stewart, 99 plate appearances on the season, batting average of just 205, on base percentage of just 333, slugging percentage of 313. DJ Stewart's on base percentage is higher than his slugging percentage. Now he got off to kind of a weird start with things because he suffered this left hamstring injury during spring training and then began the regular season on the 10-day injured list. But he got reinstated from that on April 10th. So he's been back for long enough and just still has not gotten going. If there's one major disappointment for the Orioles so far this year, again, it's a season of the tank. It's a season about player development, not wins and losses. It's that guys like Mountcastle and Stewart aren't doing better. You know, you'd like to see these guys get going. They haven't really gotten going. That can change. I mean, we're only in the middle of May, but you've got to keep playing these guys. That's the point of a season like this, okay? Let these guys take their lumps, rack up plate appearances. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And hopefully at the end of the season, you're feeling good about where you're at with these guys. O's are off on Monday, then have a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays Tuesday through Thursday at Camden Yards. The Rays are 23-19, and 19, have won four straight, including a three-game sweep of the New York Mets over the weekend. By the way, four of the five teams in the American League East have winning records. O's are the only AL East team that does not have a winning record. The division is brutal, and for the most part, uh, has been for years.
All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at AlGaldi. You can email me, the AlGaldi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show coming up on Tuesday's installment of the podcast. Full react to and analysis of Capitals Bruins Game 2, which is at Capital One Arena on Monday Night Caps, trying for a 2-0 lead on Boston in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Also, we've got to talk about this Dan Snyder Bruce Allen stuff. You've been following this. Didn't have time to get into all this on uh, this installment of the pod, but the news over the weekend of Vadani having tried to shortchange Brucey on what was owed to Brucifer upon him being fired. You can't make this stuff up. It's just tremendous. So we'll get into that on Tuesday's show. We'll have Wizards at Boston to preview as the Wizards are in the NBA postseason. Not the NBA playoffs. Don't say the playoffs, but the NBA postseason was at the Celtics in the Eastern Conference's 7-8 game on Tuesday night. And we'll have game one for the Nationals at the Chicago Cubs to get into as well. The return of John Lester to Wrigley Field. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. This is Coach Norv Turner.